0: Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Context is the Ten Commandments. And we'll pick it up with the Fourth Commandment. Um, If you were raised Catholic or Lutheran, you will think that this is the third commandment. uh, But this is the fourth commandment. Different traditions have different ways of numbering the Ten Commandments. You wouldn't think it would be that difficult, but that's a topic for another time. (laughs) Exodus 20, beginning at verse 8, the words of God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Father, we again thank you for this day, the Lord's Day, also known as the Christian Sabbath, a day that you have blessed, a day that you have made holy. Help us to see the significance of that. Help us to see what it means for us to remember this Sabbath day to keep it holy. Help us to see the blessings and the threats that are attached to this commandment. Help us to see the joy that should surround this commandment. For better is one day in Your house than a thousand elsewhere. Where would we rather be on this day than in Your house, in Your very presence, beholding Your face and Your glory. Father, I pray that You will send Your Spirit mightily to make up for any weakness within me. Transform our church so that it can conform to Your commandments. And we ask this confidently in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you were here last week, you may have uh, detected maybe just a little bit of disgust that I had with George Barna um, in his book, uh, Revolution. Um, He asserted, you will recall, that membership and involvement in the local church is optional. Uh, We can take it or leave it, and let me say again, I find that absolutely appalling, and completely unbiblical. Why would Barna say such a thing? Well, because in his opinion, church is only a congregational formatted ministry. One of many ways to develop and live a faith-centered life. We made it up. No, it was Jesus who said, I will build my church. Writes Barna, whether you become a revolutionary immersed in, minimally involved in, or completely disassociated from a local church is irrelevant to me and within boundaries to God. He went on to say, what matters is a godly life. So, if a local church facilitates that kind of life, then it is good. And if a person is able to live a godly life outside of a congregation-based faith, then that too is good. And I asserted last week that you cannot live an obedient life outside of the local church. Contrary to George Barna, we saw last week from 1 Corinthians 12 that Christianity is by its very nature corporate. We who are all many form one body. And we saw that the church by definition is the body of Jesus Christ. We are united to Christ as well as to one another. And we mentioned that theologians call this the mystical union of the believer. And it's mystical because we don't know how it takes place exactly. We know it's not physical, but it is spiritual and we also saw from 1 Corinthians 12:13 that this union takes place at conversion when Jesus baptizes us into the spirit as well as into the body his body so christianity is a person coming to faith in Jesus Christ and involved in that is the baptism of Jesus Christ into the spirit into His body. We could just say simply into the church. So there is no Christianity therefore outside the church. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be united to Christ and His body and to one another. And we saw from verses 14 and following that we need one another. Those with an inferiority complex we mentioned can't say, well, I just have this lowly gift over here. I don't really belong. No, you do belong. And we also mentioned that others with a superiority complex can't say to others, well, I don't need you, you're not really necessary. God has created us as Christians to be interdependent. We need one another. So as Paul said, if one part suffers, we all suffer. And if one part is honored, we all rejoice. We are in this together because this is how God created The church. So, a question we might ask at this point is, so what? Or, now what? Where do we go from here? There are many answers to that question, and we'll answer a few of them in the weeks to come. But the first answer I want to give this week is, well, the first thing we do is celebrate the Sabbath. Or if you want the answer given from Exodus 20, we remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But I'm basically saying the same thing. Now, to get a handle on the Sabbath and what it is exactly, I want us to go back to the beginning, the very beginning, the literal beginning, the first week of creation. I'd like you to turn to Genesis 2, if you would. Page 2 in my Bible. (laughs) Genesis 2. Verse 1 reads, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. That's a summary of everything that's taken place in chapter 1. Namely, uh, God creating the world, the universe, and everything in it in six days. Of course, evolutionists have a huge problem with that because their underlying presupposition is that it takes billions and billions of years for that to take place. After all, it takes a long time many eons for something to come out of nothing. And I would agree with that. It takes a long time for something to come out of nothing. So they have a problem with this. Why could God create the world in such a short period of time? Christians also have a problem with God creating the world in six days, but they come at the problem from the exact opposite direction. They look at it and say, why did it take God such a long time to create the world? He could have snapped His fingers that fast and everything would have been here. So why did He take His own sweet time? Is He a loafer? You know, does He just take His time and do a little work today and say, well, maybe I'll wait till the next day? No, there's a reason why God created the world in six days and then rested on the seventh day, as we'll see. He's giving us an example to follow. And that will become explicit In Exodus 20. But after he finished his creation, verse two says, "And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done." Now, Joy, let me ask you: Does God get tired? No, God doesn't get tired. Okay, so when it says he rested, it wasn't from exhaustion. Wow, that's hard creating the world. You try that, Tim. That's really difficult. No, the rest here is from His active work. And of course, God continues to work. Jesus made that clear. We saw that in the Gospel of John. Otherwise, the world wouldn't be here. Resting from His active work. Again, giving us an example to follow. And verse 3 says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that He had done in creation. Notice two words. God blessed the seventh day. Can some kid tell me what the opposite of blessed is? Somebody 12 and under. Parker, cursed, Cursed. absolutely. Blessed and cursed, those are opposites. But don't think that the first six days were cursed and now God said, I'm going to bless this day. What it means here is that God is going to place His special favor upon this day. This day is going to have an extra blessing, as it were. And God also says that He blessed the seventh day and made it holy. What do we often think is the opposite of holy? Christopher? Evil, that's right. Or unholy. But there's actually another opposite to holy that we don't often think of, and that is common. Sometimes we have things that are for common use, and we have things that are for holy use. For example, in the tabernacle, God set aside holy utensils. Now, is that to be distinguished from wicked, unholy, evil utensils? No, that's to be distinguished from unholy, or rather I should say common utensils, everyday utensils. Uh, Sometimes at Thanksgiving, I'm sure some of you do this. You'll have the family over and you'll get out the holy, as it were, utensils, silverware that you don't use for the rest of the week, right? Or maybe you have special dishes that you use on special occasions that you don't use the rest of the week. You might refer to those as holy dishes or holy utensils. What God is saying here is that the seventh day is blessed and it is holy, in other words, It is set aside from the common, ordinary part of life. And it is set apart to God and His service. This is a special day. And we should mark that well. One day in seven, God says, is different from the other days. This is a day of rest. And let's remember that Sabbath means rest. So I think we should observe right up front that God built the world with a specific Rhythm, six one, six one, six one. We work for six days and we observe a Sabbath. Work for six days, observe a Sabbath. This is God's creation. This is not man's creation. and you cannot violate this without doing damage. Others have tried. During the French Revolution, leaders tried to change the work week from six days of work to one of rest to nine days of work and one day of rest. And that was done to squeeze extra work out of the workers. Well, the results were disastrous and the workforce broke down and Napoleon was forced to revert back to God's created order. Six days of work, one day of rest. Stalin tried the same experiments in Russia with the exact same consequences and he too had to go back to a seven-day week with six days of work, one day of rest this is how God has created the world we can say we don't like it we can balk against it but this is how God created the world now Exodus 20 Ten Commandments that we just read Fourth Commandment remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy Now, let me just point out the obvious here. We're not just to say, oh yeah, I remember the Sabbath day. Yeah, that's a holy day. That's different from the other days. God's special blessing is upon it. No, we're to remember the Sabbath day in order to keep it holy. So we should ask ourselves, well, how do we keep it holy? And let me just tell you right up front that there are things that we are to do. And we will spell that out as we go. But just notice that. There are things we are to do. Verse 9 Six days you shall labor and do all your work. By the way, that's part of the commandment. We are commanded to work. And that is not post-fall. That is pre-fall. That's not the judgment of God. Okay, Adam, you want to sin? I'm going to make you work. No, Adam worked before the fall. We are called to work. We are called to be busy, to be productive. We are commanded not to be idle. Not to be busybodies. So that's very important. Verse 10, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gate. So God is establishing something for your entire home. He's establishing something For the entire nation. This is to be a day of rest. You are not to work. And a little later we'll talk more specifically about that. what work means exactly. Now what's the reason given for this? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. We already mentioned this. So when God created the world in six days, and then rested from his work. He did so so that we would have an example to follow. God says, this is how I work. Six days and then rest. I want you to follow my pattern. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now what I want you to notice right up front that Sabbath rests, and that's redundant because Sabbath means rest. <laughs> Sabbath rest, rest, rest. It's part of, we could call, creation law. This is built right into creation. This is how God creates the world. This is why some 6,000 years later, here we are, and we still have on our calendar <laughs> seven day weeks. Shazam! Where did that come from? Came from God, who created the world this way. And there's no altering it. Creation Law doesn't change. We could say the same for marriage law. One man, one woman. That doesn't change. That's part of God's created order. We can't change it a little later and ask Congress, well, can you consider a man and a man or a woman and a woman? No, you can't change. this is creation law. God establishes from the foundation of the world. this doesn't change. That's what we're talking about. Creation law, something that doesn't change. Although, there could be additions or modifications added. Turn to Deuteronomy 5. In Deuteronomy 5, and this is approximately 40 years later, Exodus comes at the beginning of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and then right at the end of the wilderness wandering we read in deuteronomy which means second giving of the law before they're ready to enter the promised land god gives the law again and we have the ten commandments again and the fourth commandment deuteronomy 5 beginning at verse 12 observe the sabbath day to keep it holy as the lord your god commanded you six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. That your male servant and female servant may rest as well as you. Sound familiar? So far so good. I'm a verbatim what we have in Exodus. Now, notice, before we move on, notice that the original reason given for the Sabbath remains placed, remains set. In verse 12, Moses said, Observe the Sabbath to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Where did God command that? Back in Exodus 20, he commanded that, as related to what he established in Genesis 2, right at the beginning of creation. So that remains fixed. But, there is an addition. Verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. That's different. That's different from what we read in Exodus Now, notice very carefully, verse 15, you shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. This is a very simple, practical application that I think God had for the Israelites. He says, remember that you were slaves. When were they supposed to do that? On the Sabbath day. That day was set apart and they were to remind one another, you know what? There was a time when we were slaves and maybe little children would say, Really, Daddy? What was like, what was that like? I wasn't there. And maybe you would say, well, I remember because I was a child. We were enslaved under Egyptian bondage. They treated us ruthlessly day in and day out. We had to work for them. We never had a day of rest. We had to work seven days a week. We didn't get a day of rest until God intervened on our behalf. And let me tell you how God intervened on our behalf. It was amazing. And then you could talk to them about the plagues and Moses leading the people out. And you could talk about walking through the Red Sea on dry ground and God closing up the Red Sea. And you could talk about God bringing you into the promised land. They were to do that on the Sabbath. Why? Because God said that. Remember, remember you were slaves. So God's mighty hand delivered you. Now here's a question I have for the kids. This is a little harder one. The Israelites' deliverance from Egypt is a picture or a type of what event in the New Testament. I told you that was a harder one. Any of you adults want to help them out? I see, I see some are going, no, no. <laughs> this is a type of our ultimate Salvation deliverance from slavery to sin, Satan, and death until God came and God delivered us. And this is very important because what we have in the commandment here is not only creation law, but what Doug Wilson likes to call redemptive law. And again, it's not one or the other. It's both of them coming together. Redemptive law. In other words, there's a slight modification to the fourth commandments. Added to rest is also the reminder to realize that rest illustrates our salvation. So not only do we have physical rest in the Sabbath, but we also have spiritual rest. We're to rest from our labor. We're also to rest from earning our salvation. Our salvation is earned. By resting in the perfect work of Christ. Salvation comes through rest, not through work. And that's very important. And maybe that will help us to appreciate another change in the fourth commandment that we observe. And that is the change from the seventh day to the first day. When do the Israelites' children celebrate the Sabbath? What day of the week? Parker, Saturday, Saturday. thanks for being bold though, Saturday, the seventh day of the week, the last day of the week, when do we celebrate the Sabbath? Yes, Zach, Sunday. Sunday, that's right, Sunday, you both got it right, very good, Sunday, now why do we do this? Did we just decide, well, you know, Sunday is really a better day. It kind of fits my schedule better. Because if I can get things done at home on Saturday, then on Sunday I can come to church. Is it just more convenient? Is it just arbitrary? It is not at all. Uh, let me read from the Westminster Confession of Faith, describing this change, which many Reformed and Presbyterian people subscribe to. Describes it this way. As it is the law of nature creation law, that, in general, a due portion of time be set apart for the worship of God, so in his word by a positive moral and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath, to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. So how did this change come about? It came about with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Basically, every Sunday we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, and this is this is descriptive and not prescriptive in instructing us, but when you read through the Gospels and Acts, you see that Jesus rose on the first day of the week, and then He appeared to His disciples on the first day of the week, and then a week later, on Sunday, He again appeared to His disciples, and then on Pentecost, which was once again a Sunday, He pours out His Spirit, And the early disciples caught on to this very quickly. And they said, this is amazing how Jesus Christ has worked, but now He rests and He appears to us on a Sunday. And He pours out His Spirit upon us on a Sunday. And they picked up on that. And the early church changed the Sabbath from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. And from the very beginning of church history, the church has observed, Sunday as a new Sabbath or the Lord's Day. Now, now that's not adequate. We could say the church got it wrong. But did they get it wrong? Is there internal evidence? In other words, evidence within the Bible that this is the case that the church met on the first day of the week. And there is evidence. 1 Corinthians 16. And I'll just, I'll just give you these real quickly so that you can see that right from The era of the Bible, the church was meeting on the first day of the week, not on the last day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul is writing, now concerning the collection for the saints, this is to help with famine relief, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredited by letter to carry your gifts to Jerusalem. So Paul says, this is what I want you to do. We're setting aside a special offering. Special offering, not a regular offering. Special offering to help with famine relief. And this is what I want you to do on the first day of the week. Set aside some money so that when I come, you don't have to take up a collection. Now, what's assumed there? What's assumed there is that the church is gathered together on the first day of the week. Now some who argue against this say no, Paul isn't saying that they're gathered together for worship necessarily. He's just saying set aside money on the first day of the week. Well, that's that's ridiculous. And it's unnecessary because if they're not gathered together on the first day of the week, if they're just in their homes, they could set aside money anytime, right? Monday, Tuesday, it it doesn't matter. Why set it aside on the first day of the week? Because that's when they gather together as a church. They take up a collection. They set it aside so that when Paul comes, they don't have to take up a collection It's already been taken up in the church. If people were setting it aside on Sunday, on the first day of the week, in their homes when Paul came, they would still have to take up a collection. They'd have to bring the money together. So it's really very simple, very basic, and it demonstrates that the church at Corinth was gathered together on the first day of the week. Acts 20. Acts 20. Verse 7 just states very simply, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Midnight. Uh, This is a church service that goes on and on and on. And if you think I go on and on and on, look at the Apostle Paul. He preached forever. And I and I don't get too disheartened when people fall asleep on occasion because they fell asleep on the Apostle Paul. So if they fall asleep on him, I don't feel too bad. Now if it happens every single week, I'm going to get upset. So please, no falling asleep. But again, very simply, they're gathered together on the first day of the week. That's important. Not on the last day of the week. Not on Wednesday. Not on Thursday. On the first day of the week. This is when they gather together. Why do they gather together? To break bread. We call that communion. communion. Thank you. We call that communion. I think that's significant. We gather together. And notice, I think it's significant. Paul says to observe communion. Not to preach. Not to sing hymns. Not to pray although they did all those things. But I find it interesting that he says we gather together centrally to celebrate the death of Jesus Christ. And I think that's important. And I think that relates to what the Israelites were to do. They were to observe the Sabbath and to remember there was a time when we were slaves, but we slaughtered the Passover lamb. We sprinkled the the blood on the doorpost and God delivered us. And now we experience the anti-type or the reality of that. And we gather together on the Sabbath and we remember, you know what? There's a time when we were slaves. Given slaves to sin, Satan, perversion, you name it, we're embarrassed. But God gave the ultimate lamb. He was sacrificed and by His blood we are set free and we enjoy freedom. Freedom. I think there's an exact parallel between the Old Testament Sabbath and the New Testament Sabbath. And again, we can see just within the Pentateuch itself, the first five books of the Bible, that God alters the commandments without abolishing the commandments. So here we are gathered together celebrating what's also known as the Lord's Day. And just one verse, and I can just read it for you. Revelation 1.10, John writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And obviously, when John wrote that, when he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, he would assume that his listeners knew which day that was. The Lord's day. Which which day is that? Thursday? The Lord's day. You know what that also tells us? Something very significant as well that there is a special day still. There's the Lord's day. Obviously, every day is to be done for God. Every day is to be worshipped. Every day is to be a day offered to God. But if John can say, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, it does indicate that there's a special day apart from the other days. Because if all days are exactly alike, if all days are the Lord's day, then John's statement here is nonsensical. So, obviously, when he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, they knew which day that was, and that was the Sabbath day. Uh, and that's why D.A. Carson edited one book on this whole issue called From Sabbath to Lord's Day. It's another way to describe the transition from Sabbath to Lord's Day. And let me just, let me just give a, a brief word of explanation on the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, Some of you have heard me say, and and Dixie's smiling. Maybe she already knows where I'm going. She knows me so well. Uh, Some of you have heard me say say this before, but there's one page in your Bible that is not inspired of God. And and you need to tear out that page and don't read that page. And that is the blank page separating the Old Testament from the New Testament. I say that half jokingly, but half seriously, because sometimes it gives the impression that we have Jewish scriptures and we have Christian scriptures. Uh, I think just a couple of weeks ago, someone was here. I won't say which organization they were from, but certain ministry, and they gave me the Bible and they handed me a you know a New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs, you know, little thing. And I wanted to say, what's that? You know, when he said this is the Bible, you know, I wanted to play with him a little bit. I said, that's not the Bible. <laughs> I, I was, Where's the rest of it? What? a well, final chapter, and that's important because we need to realize that we have one Bible, that there's a progression of thought and a progression to God's work of redemption that flows from Genesis to Revelation. It's not as though God was working this way in the Old Testament and now stepping across the blank page into the New Testament. He's working in a totally different way. That's not the case at all. I think we should look at it this way: we have the Old Testament here, which is foundation, and then the New Testament comes, which is God building on what He did in the Old Testament or fulfilling what He did in the Old Testament. But they are directly related. Too many Christians assume, well, that's that's the Old Testament. You know, you might turn to the Old Testament and you might read one of the commands and say, well, you know, this is what God said back in Leviticus, and people will say. Well, that's the Old Testament. And, and my response, of course, is always, so? But, but the assumption is, well, that's the Old Testament. None of that applies. And I want to say, we need to be careful. Maybe it applies, maybe it doesn't. I admit, some things were altered. Jesus declared all foods clean. He changed the food laws. He said, that pork, usually, that was forbidden back there, but you can enjoy it now. You don't have to feel guilty about having bacon for breakfast, pork chops. I shouldn't talk too much about food skiing here, lunch. <laughs> but, but that has changed. But too often people have the working assumption that unless something is repeated in the New Testament, it doesn't apply. My working assumption is that unless it's changed or altered in the New Testament, it applies. It just carries over. It's, it's God's Word. Do, do we think God has changed because he called something an abomination in the Old Testament, do we now think, well, now he enjoys that. Do we think that that's changed? Where did the law come from? It came from the nature of God, which is immutable, which does not change. Now, things are fulfilled, but that's much different than being abrogated. So, of course, we don't come and you didn't bring your lambs this morning. Because Jesus Christ fulfilled the sacrificial system. But see, it's fulfilled. That's a diff- different way of saying, or I should say referring to the Old Testament rather than just saying, well, it doesn't apply. It does apply. So that's very important, That that connection. So maybe that'll help us to understand that when we look at passages in the Old Testament, I'm going to look at a few. When we look at passages in the Old Testament related to God's perspective of the Sabbath, we should be able to see that while our Sabbath over here in the New Testament is a little different, God still feels the same way about the Sabbath. So that's very important. We don't have to have God repeat Himself. We don't have to say, well, how do you feel about the Sabbath in the New Testament? We know how you felt about the Sabbath in the Old Testament because you gave all these scriptures. But how do you feel about it now? We should understand He feels the same way even though it's been changed a little bit. still part of creation law, but now it's part of redemptive law and ultimate redemptive law. So that's important. So as I read these Old Testament passages, realize they have relevance for us today concerning the Sabbath and how God feels about it. Let me just give you a few of them. And there are many which tell you that this is important to God. This is a big deal. I should remind you, it is part of the Ten Commandments. That were written in stone by the very finger of God. This, this is important. This is central to the law. You know, we're not talking about minor details of the law. You know, taking eggs out of a nest and protecting them when armies come in. Uh, we're not. We're not talking about small details of the law. We're talking about the core of the law. Well, Exodus 16. Many of you will recall that when the Israelites were doing figure eights through the wilderness for 40 years. God miraculously provided food for them, manna, angels' food that fell down from heaven. How many days of week? How many days in the week? Six days. So what did they do on the seventh day? Starve? Did God say, well, six days you're going to collect food, you're eat. On the seventh day, you're going to go hungry. No. What happened on the seventh day? Very good. Thank you. That's important. I'm going to come back to that a little later. They collected enough on the sixth day for the seventh day so they didn't have to open their door or their tent flap, whatever it was, go out and collect all the food. They had enough on the sixth day so they could just wake up and say, wow, we don't have to collect food. We don't have to work. We can just sit here at the table, whatever they had, and enjoy the food that God provided for us yesterday. Now, think about that. That means God built it right into the culture of the Israelites before they ever got into the promised land. He helped them to observe the Sabbath. He helped them to work six days and rest on the seventh day. That was built into the very fabric of the culture over a period of 40 years. God also said that even the land, and we see this in Exodus 23, 10 and 11 If you want to read it later, even the land was to rest and observe the Sabbath with six years of sowing, followed by one year of rest as it lay. Follow that was important. The Sabbath was even applied to the land, but it was a little different. It applied in years. For 490 years, the Israelites disobeyed that command, they never let the land rest. Can somebody do the math for me? <laughs> so how many years did the land go without resting that it should have rested? Anybody got a calculator? 490 years. 70, thank you. Must be a carpenter. Jill, thank you for giving credit. Jill figured that. For 70 years, they disobeyed that commandment. So what did God do? Anybody know? God brought the Babylonians in, took Israel captive into exile for what period of time? Seventy years. Where did that come from? Disobedience to the land rest. God said, basically, if you won't obey Me and allow your land to rest, I'll remove you from the land so that your land will rest for the seventy years obeying the Sabbath that you should have had it obey. Now, I read that and I just take a step back and I'm like, ooh, Wow, God's serious about this Sabbath. Let me give you one other passage and I want you to read this for yourself. Exodus 31, if you have your Bible. Exodus 31. I'll begin at verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all. Did you get that? Above all, God's way of saying, this is important, this is not a minor detail of the law, this is one of the more important details of the law. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you and throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to, tell me, death. Is God serious about the Sabbath? If people profane it, if they go out and they work, they're to be put to death. This is serious. God's not playing games here. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. God says it again. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. Part of keeping covenant with God. We talk about a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ and that's okay. But to be more accurate, we should talk about a covenantal relationship With God. And that word covenant is important because it reminds us that there are promises and threats involved in a covenant. Like the first covenant of works made with Adam. He said, Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do eat from whatever you want, just don't eat from that tree. The blessing attached was, if he obeyed, he would live. The threat attached was, If you eat of it, you will die. So there's promises and threats, and we, we see that. That's part of the, the covenant with God. Those are the threats. Let me let me show you. There are also promises involved as well. I don't want you to think this is all negative. Isaiah. Isaiah fifty eight, thirteen, and fourteen, just a couple of verses. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. Skip that. Wrong chapter. Getting ahead of myself. 58.13 If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath as a light and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So God says, if you honor this day, if you remember to keep it holy, I will set you on the heights. You will be a blessed people. So God says negatively, if you disobey this commandment, cut off from the covenant, you deserve death. God says, if you honor this day, I will bless you. I will lift you up. I will exalt you. And we should hear that and we should say, okay, now, if that's the case, how does God want me to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? There are many things that could be said and you'll probably have many questions afterwards, but let me give you an answer to that question. There are at least three ways of remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Number one, by gathering together for a holy day convocation and some of your translations might just say sacred assembly let me read from leviticus 23 the lord spoke to moses saying speak to the people of israel and say to them these are the appointed feasts of the lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations maybe sacred assemblies depending on your translations They are my appointed feast, And then the heading of my Bible says the Sabbath. Verse 3, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So let's begin with this. How do we keep... The Sabbath day holy. We gather together to worship God as part of holy convocation. This day is set apart for God. To remember God. To remember what He has done for us. The Israelites would remember their deliverance from Egypt. We would do something even greater. We would remember our deliverance from sin and our salvation. And we are to remember this. We are to remind our children of this. This is why we gather together. And we have to do it often. You say, how often? At least one day every seven. We have to set it aside to meet with God. Holy convocation. He is a great God. If we don't do this, we profane the Sabbath. Now, I hope none of you are saying this. this, Oh, that's what we have to do. I was afraid you were going to say that. I, I hope you're saying, this is what we get to do? This is great! Where else would you rather be on a Sunday? Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote in his book, Preaching and Preachers, that a Christian should desire to be in God's presence and to receive God's blessing in his church as much as possible. He said, surely it is quite unnatural to not want that. Surely it is unscriptural. Take the way in which the psalmist in Psalm 84 expressed his misery and sorrow because he could not go up with the others to the house of the Lord. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Is that your attitude on Sunday? I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I was glad when mom and dad said, let's get dressed so we can go to church. Yay! Good! Can't wait. He goes on and he says... Those who couldn't, and this was the psalmist, he couldn't go up to the house of the Lord. He was thinking of those who had the privilege. And he said, Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee. So in other words, he thinks of envy. For whatever reason, probably in captive, he couldn't go to the house of the Lord. He wanted to. He feigned to. He desired to. And he looked at those who had the privilege to go to the house of the Lord. and said, wow, how blessed they are. They get to go to church on Sunday. I'm jealous. I wish I could go to church. This is terrible. I'm a shut and I have no ride to church. I wish I could go to church. This should be the desire of our hearts. Nothing is comparable to being in the house of God. A day in thy courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Surely this ought to be instinctive in the true Christian. There is something seriously wrong spiritually with anyone who claims to be a Christian who does not desire to have all that can be obtained from the ministry of the church. And Lloyd-Jones is absolutely right. So to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, we have to observe a holy convocation. And this should be a delight. Number two, to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy... There needs to be, hold on to your hats, feasting and joy. Feasting and joy. Notice that I did not say fasting and mourning. Suffering and depression. And I mean that. Feasting and joy. What do we read in Leviticus 23? These are the appointed feasts. Not fast, feast. And then the first one given is the Sabbath. The first feast that he outlines is the Sabbath. The Sabbath is to be a feast. It is to be a day when we have a party. Let me read from Nehemiah as well to help with this. Nehemiah is, is even stronger. In the context of Nehemiah 8, Ezra is le- reading the law. People are hearing God's Word. They're, they're hearing it and they're realizing, oh no, we, have, we haven't we have obeyed the law of God. We've sinned against God. They're, they're mourning. This is appropriate mourning. And then picking it up, in verse 9 we read, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is Holy to the Lord your God. Okay? This is a holy day. Remember Sabbath day. This day is holy. What what, what does that mean? Sometimes we think, oh, this, this is a holy day. This is probably a day of fasting. This is probably a day when we should just, you know, turn our gaze inward and just mourn over our sin. No. This day is holy. What are the implications? Do not mourn or weep. In other words, Nehemiah, Ezra, the priest, saw the people mourning, saw the people weeping, and basically said to the people, Knock it off! Stop it! This is a holy day! Stop mourning and weeping. And he goes on and he says, For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And you think, well, that would be appropriate because of what they've done. And it is appropriate for a time, short period of time. then he says, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day, for this day is holy to our Lord. This is a holy day. Which means stop mourning, start rejoicing, eat and drink, and be merry. I'm not making this up. It's right here in the passage. This is what Nehemiah is saying. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the word that were declared to them. So, it's practical application. Do whatever you can to make great rejoicing. I'm not kidding. Isn't this what it says? Now, you might ask this question. Well, why? Why feasting? Why eating? And, and why drinking? Notice it, it mentioned wine here. And, and I think for this reason, let, let's not be more spiritual than God. What's God doing here? God is helping his people very practically to enjoy this day. Let me ask this question. When when you go to a wedding and and you have the funds and you are able, what do you have after the wedding ceremony? What do you have? You have wine. What else do you have? Beer. Food. What else do you have? Cake. dancing. What else? Honeymoon. (laughs) You're jumping ahead a little bit. (laughs) You have a reception party. Why? Because this is worthy of celebration. You say, this is great. I can't wait till the day my daughter right here marries a godly man who has asked my permission first to court my daughter, then to marry her. But we're going to have a celebration. And, And to add, to enhance that celebration, eating and drinking. God does the same thing here. To help you rejoice. I want you to eat. I want you to drink. I want you to enjoy Well, what about those people who don't have any? I want you to send it to them so that they can enjoy the celebration. God is condescending to where we live everyday life so that we can be intentional about making this day a day of joy. And, and I've said this in the past. If, if we have ice cream in the house, and I'm sorry, we don't have any in the house right now, but... If, In the past, when we've had ice cream in the house and and my kids say, Dad, can we have some ice cream? If it's Sunday, I say, well, this is the Lord's Day. Of course you can have ice cream. And and I really mean that. And and I say that to you parents to help your kids. Sunday should be the best day of the week. And and God gives us helps to make it the best day of the week. Practical, down-to-earth helps. If if your kids ask this afternoon, can we play a game together? You should say, well, of course we can. This is the Lord's Day. We want to celebrate. We want to enjoy. Now, having said that, I I jumped ahead a little bit uh, because the third way in which we observe this day is by resting and not working. And some of you may think that by playing games together, I've I've crossed the boundaries. Uh, Some Christians do believe that. Um, That is the Puritan view of the Sabbath. Uh, I remember R.C. Sproul mentioned this, and I didn't have a chance to go back to it. I forgot. But he had mentioned that some Christian leader, I can't remember his name, came to visit John Calvin on the Sabbath and was appalled that he was involved in lawn bowling. So apparently, John Calvin didn't have a problem playing games on the Sabbath. He thought that was very appropriate. And I know Christians, again, I know Christians are divided and those who have a more Puritan view, that that's okay. But I, I really do think that the biblical view is that this is to be a day of celebrating. And and actually, I, I would say to my Puritan brothers, be careful that you don't squelch this day when God means for it to be a day of feasting and rejoicing and, and enjoyment. So the, we're to rest on this day and not to work and the question then arises: Well, what does that mean? Obviously, work is not to be understood absolutely. And, and I said this to Lydia: I, th- I said, Lydia, think of all the work Mrs. Welsh has to do on a Sunday morning just to get kids to church. <laughs> think, think of all the work, and, and some of other, you know, Steele—they they can relate. You know, imagine you know saying to Mrs. Steele, you know, I don't want you to work at all on Sunday, no work whatsoever, dressing the kids. You wouldn't make it to church. You wouldn't be able to have the Holy Convocation. And and I don't believe this was to be understood absolutely. Work here. Nehemiah, you can turn to this later, but Nehemiah 13, he rebukes the Israelites for engaging in work, which means commerce. They, they were bringing their, their wares to the market and seeking to sell them. And he says, no, the doors are closed on you. This is rest. He's talking about business as usual. That's what he, he means there. And some of you might say, well, sometimes I, I work on Sunday. There's a lot of people in this church who work on Sunday. We have firemen who work on Sunday. We have photographers who work on Sunday. Um, when they work on Sunday, are they profaning the Sabbath? Yes. Yes, they're, they're profaning the Sabbath. And God says it's okay. There, there are times when it's okay. And I know that's throwing some of you off. Uh, but Jesus gives several examples of this because the Pharisees went to extremes. And remember one time his, his disciples were plucking the grain and the Pharisees said, Ah, you're violating the Sabbath. You can't do that. And Jesus, don't you remember what David and his men did? They, they went into the temple and they profaned the temple, but they ate of the grain on, on the Sabbath. And it's okay. So in other words, it's okay under certain conditions to profane the Sabbath. Remember another time there was a man with a withered hand And it was a Sabbath. And Jesus setting setting the people up. Pharisee says, is it right to do good or evil on the Sabbath? And they didn't want to answer. And Jesus intentionally healed on the Sabbath. Intentionally. He could have waited until the next day. He could have waited until Sunday. He intentionally healed on the Sabbath. He said, no, this is a Sabbath to the Lord. On this day, especially it's appropriate to do works of mercy. On this day especially, it's important to work, if that might mean ministry to those in nursing homes, especially on a Sunday. That work is appropriate. That work is honoring to God. And Jesus did this repeatedly because the Pharisees miss, missed the point altogether. So let, let me put you at ease. This, this work, it's, it's not, oh, you can't, you can't do anything. Because people ask, well, I, I like to rake leaves. Is that okay to do on Sunday? I say, Yeah. If, if someone were to say, well, I don't like to rake leaves. Is it okay to do on Sunday? And my answer would be no. <laughs> Actually, I don't, I don't think it is. If you want to just know my answer, just for one practical example. Uh, because I think we should be intentional about this day being a day of joy. And that's for yourself too. Don't do not do something that you don't like to do. and Make yourself miserable and then come into the house and spread that misery. And be intentional with, with your kids. Sunday should be the day when... the the wives are going to like this. Maybe not. <laughs> Sunday should be the day when the dishes pile up in the sink. You know, every once in a while, oh, the dishes are in the sink. Yeah, it's Sunday. Leave them. They'll, they'll be there Monday. I'll leave them for you, honey. They'll be there. Or the kids, it's not the day to clean the house. It's not the day. Oh, today is the day we're going to clean out the garage. Oh, don't, don't do that. I think that's a profaning of the Sabbath. I, I really do. So, this, this, the Sabbath is supposed to be a delight. God created the Sabbath for man. This is God's gift to us. Gather together. Worship me so I can build you up. So that I can refresh you spiritually. Go home. Rest. So that I can refresh you physically. This is not a day to endure. This is a day for rejoicing and celebrating. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this great gift of the Sabbath that You have given to Your people. May we... Remember this day. Keep it holy. Father, thank You for this blessed day. Thank You for yet another gift from Your good hand. Father, help us even today as we go throughout this day to make it a blessed day. To make changes in our families so that this can become a day of the week that we all look forward to. In Jesus' name, Amen.